Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. And today, John, too. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. We're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. And, of course, he's not either of us. Who are you? I'm John Palmer, the author of How to Brew. (laughs) (laughs) And and many, many other things. (laughs) We figured that today we were going to do our Q&A show and catch up because we kind of missed our usual uh, calendar because things happen. And since we had to go and make things up, why didn't we bring in some actual expertise? So welcome to the show, John. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, glad yeah. I could fill in for the expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Well, generally, we just kind of like make wild-ass guesses at things. So it's nice to have somebody here who maybe like has a, a modicum of authority. All right. <laughs> Modicum, yes. yes. <laughs> All right. I think we need to get the show on the road, buddy. We do. But before we can do that, we need to take a quick break here so we can thank the people responsible for the show. Stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. And let's give back together. The Y-East yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among Brewmaster's favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272 PC North American Lager and 2352 PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. 
Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Thanks for sticking around, everybody. We're just going to dive right in here. And we decided that uh, this question from Peter Simons would be a great one to start off. Uh, Peter asks, what is beer? Or more importantly, what is not beer? That is the question. Hmm. Uh, I'll start off and I'll just say, I think what is beer is kind of like the question about what is porn. I know it when I see it. <laughs> and you see a lot of it? Is that what you're saying? I see a lot of beer, yes. Oh, okay. Um, no, for anybody who doesn't remember that, that, that was actually literally part of a Supreme Court argument. So, uh, what is beer? What is beer to me? I think, um, barley malt based beverage with adjuncts and hops. Now, the real question is, where do you go from there? Cause I think we can all agree that, you know, Pilsner's beer, IPA is beer, hazy IPA is beer, right? Uh, maybe not our preferred style. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the only real question starts to get, where do you draw the line between like when you get the stuff that has like tons of fruit adjuncts in it? You know, so your, your slushy things and, and that we all, I think can also agree that seltzer is not beer, but yeah, I think you're leaving out a crucial piece though. What's that? Which is fermentation. Well, true. Yeah. 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 An RTD cocktail is definitely not a beer. Um, so so i would say beer is a fermented beverage whose base is grain of some sort doesn't need to be barley can be other grains but it's a a fermented beverage with a grain base as opposed to say wine which is a fermented beverage with a fruit base 
Uh, I would say that slushy beers and all those fruit smoothie beers and stuff are, are still beers as long as it's, you know, the stuff is added to a fermented grain base. Yeah. Yeah. Grain based fermented beverage. Uh, and I, I think, I think you got to throw hops in there too. Uh, you can have non hopped beers. But we do we call we commonly call, refer to those by a different name. Yeah, that's right, man. So I mean, are we talking historical or modern usages? Oh, let, you know? let's be let's be very clear. I, I think the intent here on this question is, hey, do, does all this fruity, sour, s- smoothie stuff that I don't like qualify as beer? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the way I, I read I the know, question. Yeah. yeah, I know that that's what Peter was getting at, and I was desperately trying to avoid that interpretation. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but it, it, I mean, it is true. I mean, look, there's a lot of beer styles out there that I don't like, uh, but they're still considered beer. Um, I, do I get a little annoyed at like some of the fruit slushy stuff? Sure, but it's not my bag of tea, and I don't have to buy it. So there we are. Right. Yep. yep. And as a home brewer, I don't have yep. to make it. <laughs> yeah, and as a consumer, I don't have to drink it. <laughs> Right. So, uh, John, what are your limits on uh, what you like to drink? Uh, you know, I'm old school. Uh, <laughs> if it doesn't have Cascade, I'm asking why. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, a fermented grain-based beverage balanced with hops, I think, is probably my preferred definition of beer. Um, you can have different degrees of balance, of course, but... That I think the role of hops in beer is to provide that balance. Now, you know, then from there you can say, okay, I'm going to add some fruit to it. I'm going to, you know, boil the hops differently so you know they, the whole thing ends up hazy. Um, but yeah, I, I think as long as you cover those three points, you know, it is a beer. But um, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm very partial to my pale ales and, and dunkles and, and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm going to completely digress, but a quick round table. What's the least amount of hops you've ever used in a five gallon batch? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like a half ounce, yeah. maybe Denny. Yeah. I, I would say somewhere around in there. Maybe when I do the wee shroomy, I, I can't remember exactly how much is in there. No more than an ounce of Northern brewer. And then maybe even less than that. Uh, yeah, so I got you all beat an eighth of an ounce, and that's where <laughs> wow. that's for my mild. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Ten. What was your OG? Ten thirty six. Ten thirty six. And I was using like Magnum or Challenger, you know. So I was using a high alpha. Oh, so yeah, I was high, using a high yeah. alpha acid hop, but still at the same time, eighth of an ounce. Wow. Wow. All right. Okay, you win. Hey, I get the prize today. Woo-hoo. All right. Should we get into our actual first proper category and make sure we don't digress too far? Well, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of fun. Okay, okay, okay. I guess we ought to answer a real question. Okay, so this one's for you, Denny, uh, and it's the perennial question. I'm not entirely certain we've ever had a Q&A show where it hasn't popped up. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so I'm going to give you exactly 10 seconds to answer this question from Steve <laughs> yeah, Donaldson. Uh, who wrote him via email? We know that Y East fourteen fifty is Denny's fave. You've hinted that you are the Denny it is named after. Is there a story? Yes. 
Of course there's a story. Uh, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can, uh, which for me isn't very quick. Here's my 10 seconds up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, about 20 years ago, I decided it would be fun to start uh, farming yeast. Uh, and so I got a hold of some uh, supplies and slants from a company down there in L.A. from a woman Drew knows. Uh, the company was called uh, Brutech. Yep, Brutech Yeast Farm and- in B. Rains. Yep. And uh, at that period of time, I was also starting to develop my uh, my rye IPA recipe. I've been using Y-Yeast 1272. I decided to give the Brutech CL50 a try, and it just went so perfectly with that beer. Uh, the smoothness of the rye, the silky mouthfeel from the yeast, perfect combo. I loved it. I started talking it up online, which there wasn't much of back then, uh, mainly Rec Crafts Brewing and uh, Homebrew Digest. Uh, people became interested in it, but nobody wanted to go through all the culturing and keeping slants and stuff like that. I started talking to Dave Logston, uh, who owned Y-Yeast at the time, about Y-Yeast taking it on. Uh, there were other places where it was available at that point. Brutech had closed down. They'd sold the strain to somebody else. Eventually, uh, those other places stopped selling it. I took a slant that I had in my fridge and uh, gave it to Dave, and Y-East started uh, culturing it up from that. So that's what it is. I kind of saved it from extinction. And uh, if you use 1450 now, you're using a yeast that uh, lived in my beer fridge for a period of time. So I did say uh, 15 seconds, not 15 minutes. But 20 years ago, you said you started yeast ranching. How long did you keep it up for? I kept it up for maybe a year or so before it just became so much of a hassle. I was looking to get rid of it. Uh, fortunately, there was a guy in our club, uh, Nate Sampson, who was a trained microbiologist. So he kind of like took over all the stocks that I had. Yeast ranching. It's like an aquarium for people who are too excited by fish. Yeah, I mean, and you know, if you're thinking about getting into it, it, it it's kind of fascinating, but it's an effort because you have, especially if you're using slants or plates, you got to reculture every few months. And, you know, I'm, I'm lazy, so it just wasn't for me. Mr. Palmer, what about you? How much yeast ranching have you done? Um, I've done several uh, over the years, but um, I think only in a couple cases I've actually actually pitched on them. They often tend to die from neglect. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I know that, man, in so many things, not just yeast. In other words, words, don't buy John Palmer or Tamagotchi. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. yeah right yeah. all right so speaking speaking of mr palmer our next question comes from glenn schreiber who emailed us to say i see john palmer is participating in the q a i don't measure the parts per parts per gallon good lord uh contribution from s- steeping specialty grains in an extract beer i use table nine and how to brew.com but intuitively the numbers for chocolate malt roast barley and black patent seem high 15 21 and 21 respectively a lot of time has passed since HowToBrew.com. I'm wondering if these are still considered to be the best available PPG numbers for extract brewing with specialty grains. And to answer the obvious question, I will be getting the fourth edition soon. Should have done that a long time ago. Yes, yes, you, yes you should have. <laughs> um, you know, I went back and looked at Table 9 and compared it to more recent data and uh, it, that I used in the fourth edition. And, you know, I think... You, it's real data 
that's the thing. I used <laughs> yeah. I used a, a logical uh, method for obtaining that data. You know, steeping steeping a pound of the grain and crushed grain and in the, in the uh, gallon of water to get the number. And uh, yeah, so real data, your your mileage may vary. You're, the different maltsters have different recipes for you know malts of the same type. Uh, their roast barley may be different, you know, different extract and different, you know, loba bond from someone else's. But, uh, yeah, it's real data. So uh, I think it's good. Okay. There you go. You heard it from so, the source. So nothing, yeah, nothing has changed because it's stuff that you actually measured. Yeah. So it, it's not, uh, okay. All right. So, Glenn, cool. trust the numbers, trust the process, but also verify the process if you feel so inclined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Because maybe maybe the grains that you're using are are different, and there's something you know a different number that'll be attached to them. So you just heard John say that he steeped a pound in a gallon of water and actually measured. Well, there you go, man. Try it yourself. All right. Next question comes from Steve Roosh, who emailed us to say, "Would you recommend using craft malt and why?" And I suspect that's a softball question. So Denny. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I know that Steve, uh, who lives in Indiana, has just made a beer using all Indiana malts. Uh, I think, yeah, he said all Indiana ingredients, but I don't know about the hops and yeast. And so I'm pretty sure that's where this question comes from. I would say, yes, I recommend using craft malt uh, when it's appropriate. And for me, it's appropriate most of the time. Uh, if, you know, for instance, when I make a Pilsner, I, I'm going to use like, you know, probably a continental Pils malt, although not necessarily exclusively. I've made great Pilsners using, uh, say, Mecca grade Pelton malt, uh, which is their kind of Pils malt. Um, and it was great. It doesn't taste like a, a Pilsner made with continental malt, but it's still very, very good. Uh, I've made uh, Pilsners using... Uh, Rar North Star Pills Malt, uh, and I've thought that that was very, very good also. So, you know, I would say learn the flavors of malts and use the one that's appropriate. And my experience is that most of the time you will get more flavor using craft malt than you will from a, a big box maltster. Well, and to add to that, I want to say that you get more flavor, but the flavors themselves are different. And right. so, like, for instance, if I was just trying to make the world's cleanest IPA, where all I wanted was, uh, you know, as much hop expression as I would, I probably wouldn't use a craft malt um, because they bring so much to the party. But as long as you understand that and that's what you're going for, yeah, absolutely use the craft malt. I think it's interesting. They're also, uh, they're more variable a lot of times than something that you'd say get from Brees or Great Western or wireman even. Um, but sometimes that variability is a, is a good thing. It's kind of, it kind of builds into the recipes. Mr. Palmer, what about you? Yeah. Um, I, I basically agree with both of you. Um, nothing wrong with craft malt. Um, I'm my, my interest in, in brewing comes from the mashing side and, and digging into, the nuts and bolts of the mash and, and pH and all that kind of stuff. So when you, somebody hands me craft malt to brew with, I, I want to see the, uh, the spec sheet. I want to see 
the uh, soluble to total protein index. Um, you know, let me know how modified it is. Uh, look at its, you know, its friability, you know, and other modification indicators, because that helps inform me on what kind of brewing process and style that malt be, may be most suited to. Um, yeah. So, you know, if there's no reason not to brew with craft malt, it's, um, and I think any, most any malt, you know, especially base malt on the market today will make a perfectly decent beer. It's when you're trying to take said beer to the next level that you start need to pay attention to the details. And as you say, with craft malt, there are often, you know, not necessarily variability, but there are different aspects that uh, may not be the same as the the big box maltster uh, markets that you're used to. Right. So and, basically it comes down to use the malt that's appropriate for the beer and make sure that you know how to use it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll also say that one of the big advantages from looking at craft malt, it's just also kind of like the big advantages that we get from craft beer where – a lot of these craft maltsters, what I really like about them is they're producing something unlike what I can get from other producers. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, Mecca Grade, you know, they're you know they're using a different variety of barley. So the the variation that they get out of Lamanta and Peloton, those flavors are different. But also, they make one of the best rye malts I've ever had, you know, oh, with yeah. the, the Rimrock. Um, and then like Sugar Creek, which we've had on here before. Yeah, I've been loving playing around with their malted corn. They make smoked oats. They make a ton of smoked malts, you know, very unusually. And that's something that you're not going to be able to find out of one of the bigger malsters. So that's another reason to support craft malt as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. okay. So the next question comes from Brubama on the AHA forum. And Dwayne says, when I read descriptions of ingredients, the manufacturer describes certain tastes or characteristics. As an example, one manufacturer describes their C40 as sweet, caramel, toffee, their C60 as sweet, pronounced caramel, and their C80 as pronounced caramel, slight burnt sugar, raisiny. You can see how these descriptions overlap along the spectrum. Base malts and roast malts tend to have overlapping descriptors as well. Quite frankly, I can hardly tell the difference in one maltster's Vienna versus their Munich, etc., other than color, of course. It could be my old taste buds wearing out. <laughs> I know, Dwayne. But they're so close to the same taste, I can sub in or out without too much concern. Now, when one maltster is compared to an altogether different maltster, I find it easier to discern the difference. I believe this is due to process differences or barley variety or both. Tommy and I, and Tommy refers to another AHA forum user, we brewed the same beer but used different maltsters and yeast to see if we can discern the difference. All that is to ask the question, can you guys actually discern the difference in caramel, toffee, and burnt sugar in these fairly close descriptions of sea malts when it's used at a 5 to 10% level in a batch of beer? <laughs> you know, knowing Dwayne, this is, this is a kind of question that he would ask. So uh, who wants to go first? Uh, I'll, I'll just tackle it real quick and say in 5 to 10% in the beer. I might have trouble depending upon the other flavors that are in there. I mean, if you give me the malts themselves, absolutely. 
I think you can tell the difference between toffee and caramel and, and burnt sugar. Um, but yeah, when you're in the five to 10% range and inside of a beer, I think it's all going to depend upon what else is going on. Yeah, that's very true. John? Um, yeah, when I'm judging, I mean, I, I don't often, I don't like when I'm, when I'm filling out the score sheet, I don't, or, you know, evaluating the beer, I don't try to, you know, identify the caramel malts that were used, but I do, you know, examine that, uh, you know, sea malt character and say, you know, is it just toffee or is it, uh, with a little bit of burnt sugar, um, you know, C40, yeah, that's supposed to be your light caramel, um, 60 or, you know, 75 in that area, more of your medium caramel, uh, a little darker, um, flavor, um, little, little, you know, little richer caramel flavor. Uh, and then, yeah, when you definitely, when you start getting over 80 into 90 and up to the C120, yeah, you're definitely getting more of the burnt sugar. Um, toasted marshmallow kind of character. So yeah, there is, I'd say there's, there's definitely discernible differences. Um, and I believe I have tasted those differences and say like judging a, a panel of oh, brown porters or, you know, uh, you know, other beers that would in, include those, those malts. See, I would think a good place to te- test this when you're actually, Thinking about from, you know, what you get in your own beer. And yeah, you're going to taste differences between maltsters. But I would say the best, best thought experiment in my mind is a pale ale. Because I guarantee you, if you put a pale ale with C40 and C60 against each other, you might, you know, that, that might be a little tricky. But if you did C40 and C80, you would totally tell the difference. Yeah. And also, let's face it, the other challenge is that a lot of crystal and caramel malts are, mixtures oh of course yeah that and i guess yeah, almost all, that, yeah. that's a good point to bring up because i think a lot of people don't realize that yeah they they assume it's a you know a fully differentiated product but rather than a blend uh of you know anything from c5 c15 up to c60 it may go into a c40 mix right. yeah yeah, going go the next time you get a handful of uh, crystal malt, put, uh, just grab it and take a look, and you'll see a broad spectrum of colors in those kernels. And that's because you have the maltsters, as good as they are these days with computer controls and temperature controls over the kilning, there's still a variability. And so they use a blending to sort of mix into spec- specification. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, that, I think so. Yeah, I think between like two steps or one, one step, C40 to C60, it might be a little hard to tell sometimes. But yeah, if you were to do a pale ale with a C40 versus a pale ale with a C80, and you couldn't taste the difference, then yes, I would be worried about your old taste buds. But but we're not really talking about the difference between different colored malt. I'm mean, sure you can you can detect that. But the the flavor descriptors is what I think that uh, Dwayne oh, yeah. is asking no, I, about. No, I think you can t- taste the difference in the flavors. So Again, sweet, I think, I think sweet caramel toffee as opposed to sweet pronounced caramel uh, versus pronounced caramel, slight burnt sugar, raisiny. Well, that's that's you a can, problem with the English language, I think. <laughs> you know, not they're not having enough descriptor descriptors to fully describe that flavor. Um, Spanish right. has that problem. Their main descriptor is savory, 
So they use lots of English descriptors in judging uh, to overcome that. Which is the reason why I tell people whenever you're trying to describe flavors to people, use whatever actual visceral image pops in your head. The one I always use is wine fruit punch. Mm -hmm. If you taste a beer and it tastes (laughs) like wine fruit punch, say wine fruit punch because the other person on the other side of that score sheet or description in this case is going to know what the hell you mean. Yeah, it's when you get into like these sort of more nebulous terms that it gets a little wonky. Okay, next question. Oh, sure. Why not? Uh, our next question also it comes from McGarry from the HA Forum. And it, actually two questions. Why would I ever need to bitter a beer with something other than Magnum? And my answer to that is because sometimes you want a bite of schnook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, it, it's pretty obvious. It makes me wonder if he's done much bittering with anything other than Magnum. Mm-hmm. Because there, there does seem to be a difference uh, between bittering hops. Yeah. I mean, the... Again, this goes back to Dwayne's question about at the sort of ratios that we're using. Is it noticeable? And I will say that, look, I'm a guy who 98% of the beers I produce are either bittered with Magnum or Warrior, two of the cleanest bittering hops on existence. Right. Um, and yet I will still use a bit of Chinook in my IPAs, like if I'm doing an old school West Coast IPA, because, yeah, there is a bite that gets added to it. So that would be my argument. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good argument. I would I would have said much the same. I mean, if I'm doing English bitter, um, I would try to use an English hop for that bittering, uh, just to get it to get that that char- that elusive character that tends to define that style. I, I think Denny calls that elusive character dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if it's Fuggles, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gary Glass and I started the Fuggle Haters Club many years ago. I still like Fuggles, um, at least what I think is Fuggles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, That's that's a whole other discussion. Uh, (laughs) I I find that I very seldom use Magnum. Uh, I I won't say never, but, you know, a lot of the beers that I make are IPAs and, uh, you know, I just don't feel like Magnum is appropriate for bittering in the kind of IPA that I want to make. Uh, I, I make, uh, other than IPA, I make, uh, Pilsner and probably Belgian styles as, uh, my, my other two main styles that I brew. And I tend to use continental hops all the way through those. And even though, you know, I do have some German Magnum, I do use those occasionally in those styles. More often than not, it's going to be something like Haller Tower or something like that. Well, and then that becomes a, a choice there because, you know, particularly if you're using a lower alpha continental hop, then, yeah, you're also picking up some of the, the leaf character in, in your final beer. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly, exactly. And, you know, if, um, you do get some of that uh, vegetal character from them, and maybe that's a, a hallmark of the beers. Yeah. And then there was a second question in there. Uh, what is the one ingredient – Yeast, hops, or malt that you can't be without. Cryo hops. John? Uh, what is the one ingredient? Yeast, malt? Well, I can't be without yeast. I mean, it's not beer without yeast. Um, <laughs> yeah, any particular yeast? I, no, I guess I, the, my, if I look at my batches over the last three years, um, a majority of them have been Munich Dunkels. And for those, I have been using the same batch of Vienna malt that I've had. You know, I had a whole bag worth. Um, and these right. days I'm brewing two and a half gallon batches. 
So uh, a whole bag goes a long way. <laughs> lasts you a long time. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm going to have to hit you up for your Dunkel recipe because that's one of my favorite styles, and I have not been able to come up with a decent one. So, well, you know, it's it's I'm, I'm happy to read it off to you right now. Um, I use let me pull up the thing so I don't misquote myself, but yeah, it, it you know it. Um, if we were to start really picking it apart, I don't know that um, it's really true. I called a Dunkelbach. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll get I'll get it from you some other time, and we'll put it up for people to see. Uh, yeah. So, what yeast do you tend to use in your Dunkel? Well, I, I often use thirty four seventy. Uh-huh. I've also used Kvike Voss um, from Walmart, really? and that worked out really nicely. Um, you know, the I was able to uh, pitch it and brew it using a firm wrap because, of course, the weather changed as soon as I you know, actually got in the fermenter. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, you know, the, the character of the uh, the Fike the Voss worked really well with that dark beer. Um, wow. I never would have guessed. Yeah. So my, my Dunkelbach is 60% Vienna, 30% uh, Munich 10, 7% C80 and th- 2.5% roast barley. And I go for an OG of about 1060, 1065, somewhere in there. Uh, and th- and uh, what, what's, the, what's the IBUs on it? 30. And it's a, it's a bittering okay. edition only. So, so about 2 to 1. Yeah, yeah right. Cool, man. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to make that, and if it, if it doesn't come out well, uh, you're gonna hear about yeah. it. Yeah, and what my advice, one, <laughs> I've done this. We did a we did a collab over at Del Segundo on the last year. It turned out really nice. But the thing you got to really watch is the roast, because of course, roast is not really appropriate for Dunkel. Um, the reason it's in here is that a little bit of roast, two two and a half percent of a very clean roast barley, uh, not pale chocolate, not chocolate or, you know, not, you know, is that, that, you know, uh, roast barley, dry coffee, cocoa character, just a little bit of it helps limit the sweetness of the beer. And so it helps it, finish a little cleaner without contributing a lot of roast, any real detectable roast character. Um, and that's why it's in there. Um, you know, so often when we're judging, you know, you, you're doing Schwarz beer, you're doing this dark style and all you can really taste, you know, the dominant flavor that comes across as roast malt. It's like, nah, it's too much, you know, but, uh, and so there's a little bit in this recipe and, um, but it's, it's there as a sweetness limiter, rather than a flavor uh, character. You know, I, I found the same thing in my porter recipe. You yeah. Know, the, 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 the trendy thing is to you know, smooth out the chocolate malt. So I was, you know, I was using carafa. I was, like, adding malts to the mash late, stuff like that. And what I finally found was that uh, I had made that recipe so smooth it was insipid. <laughs> 
So I started adding back about between one and a half, two percent roast barley into that beer. And it just made all the difference in the world, giving it that little bit of bite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. And and not that anybody asked, but for me, Magnum and 3724. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you still here? <laughs> yeah. Magnum is a wonderful bittering hop, and I used to use it a lot. But now when, once I moved to the two and a half gallon batches, you know, uh, it, it was. <laughs> you can't measure a small enough yeah, amount. <laughs> it was much easier just to grab the one ounce sample of, you know, saws that I'd grabbed at the trade show to throw in there. And it's like, oh, that works. Right. You know, there you go. Yeah. As opposed to like two pellets of Magnum. Yeah. Yep. All right, here you go. The last of our, or actually next to last of our ingredients questions, and this one's about cryo hops, oddly. Uh, it comes from Cliff, also from the HA forum. Uh, about the cryo hops and other hop products, is there a flavor advantage slash difference to using these products over traditional pellets, or does the advantage lie mostly with reducing wort loss? If there is a flavor difference, can you describe it, and what kind of contact times are the pros using for these new hop products? Go for it, guys. Mm. Uh... Yes, cryo hops have a distinctly different flavor to them because they don't have all the vegetal material that, uh, like, say, a T90 pellet would. Uh, they're extremely clean uh, in delivering the lupulin, sometimes almost too clean. Uh, so, uh, they, you know, sometimes I will use them in conjunction with a little bit of a more traditional product. Uh, but I definitely tend to use the cryo hops when I need a big blast of aroma. Uh, I've experimented with some of the, uh, uh, pseudo cryo that's out there made by companies other than Yakima Chief. They're good, but they're not the same as the cryo. So, you know, again, like we were saying about malts, know the product and then you can make uh, an informed decision about what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it it is a different flavor, uh, and I think it, it's it, it's most helpful when you are really trying to load in uh, bitterness uh, and aroma to an IPA where you know you're you're bumping up into that you know 100 IBU ceiling, uh, or you've got enough green matter in your uh, boil that, you know, you're, you're making net losses to, uh, bitterness as a result. So, um, right. Yeah. Very useful products. Um, I'm not brewing those kinds of IPAs, unfortunately at the moment. So I don't have much cause to use them, but, uh, yeah, I, I think they're, they're definitely good to use, good to experiment with certainly. Yeah. And I will yeah. also say that, I mean, for me, the way I've seen them being used, I know when YCH first launched these, it was all about, look, you can use half the amount of pellets and get all the flavor and the oils that you'd get out of out of your larger dose of, of hops and emphasize the idea of wort loss because, of course, that's huge in the commercial side. Uh, but <laughs> what I've seen both commercially and on the homebrew level is everybody went, ooh, look, we can use twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> me, that's what I did. <laughs> so... That's from a use point of view, but uh, I do think as long as uh, as long as you know how you're going to use them, they serve a really good purpose. So why not go and load up on the cryo? All right, yep. last ingredient question comes from our buddy Tony, uh, who wrote on a Facebook post. 
said, My friend says Sabro is amazing. I think it tastes like suntan lotion. Who's right? You are, Tony. That's what I was going to say, too, man. You know, <laughs> if Tony says that's what it tastes like to him, then he's right. That's what it tastes like to him. Well, and saying, I'll be the diplomat here, and I'll say, you both are. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that's true. If we can say Tony is right because that's his perception, then the other guy is right also because that's his perception. And, Tony, if you think that I'm going to try and give you a definitive answer to this, you're out of your mind, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And I've said this before on the podcast, and, John, I don't know how you feel about it, but I still get, I still get very confused with coconut hop flavors in an IPA. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I get confused by coconut hops to begin with, but I can definitely see them working in stouts and whatnot. But coconut in an IPA, and I love coconut. I eat coconut every day. Mm-hmm. Coconut in an IPA is just very confusing to me. I, I am the same. I, in fact, I just had a wonderful Thai curry for lunch with you know, coconut milk. <laughs> ooh, yeah. ooh. Can you email me some? That's <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But yeah, it just, I just I love coconut, but I don't like it in beer. And it just, I mean, some, like, I, I could do it in a hazy IPA because I expect those to be weird and fruity. Um, but, yeah, in a, you know, in a straight IPA or pale ale, it's just weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I have had it sometimes where it's good, but it still usually throws me for a little Yeah, yeah I, I have to agree. I, you know, I, it just doesn't do anything for me, but, you know, what can I say? Uh, we're all old guys. Those young kids, they love the yeah. stuff. Yep. All right. And speaking of the old guys, I think it's time for us to take a break so we can get on to some more questions. Oh, I thought we were going to take a nap. <laughs> what do you think a break is? <laughs> we'll be back with some questions about water and mashing right after this break. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. 
or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to pick it up here with some questions about water. The first one comes from Ken Collins in Kentucky via email. Ken writes, I've not used ascorbic acid, Brutan B, or potassium metabisulfite to decrease oxygen in beer. It is my understanding that ascorbic acid and Brutan B is added to the strike water before mashing, and potassium metabisulfite is added to prevent oxidation in keg beer. If you have any suggestions or tips on using these ingredients, it would be appreciated. Well, uh, John, you're the water guy. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean I got to answer this? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Let me say to preface this that I am I am a Lodo skeptic, and so. Ascorbic acid, the best use of that, in my opinion, is to uh, to knock out chlorine and chloramine in your brewing water, in your hot liquor, your liquor tank, uh, before brewing. Um, ascorbic acid, I think one gram treats like 100 liters, um, assuming four, wow. 4 ppm max, you know, which is the federal limit for chlorine in water supplies. Um, so yeah, a little bit of ascorbic acid in your water, boom, your chlorine's gone. Um, so ascorbic uh, acid instead of metabisulfite for, for removing both of them work, but I think, you know, in terms of, uh, bang for the buck, ascorbic acid, uh, works better. Um, damn it. Now I'm going to have to try that because I've always used, there's uh, there's a great tip. Yeah. I, I just, I learned about it, I don't know, just a year or two ago, um, talking with some uh, Brazilian brewers. But uh, there we go. And, and what was that dosage again, John? One gram will treat a hundred liters. Holy crap! Wow, that's wow, that's very that's, a, that's efficient. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, for for me, metab- adding metabisulfite or ascorbic acid is all about knocking out chlorine, you know, prevent chlorophenols rather than scavenging oxygen. Um. Brutan B is a product I'm not familiar with. We have familiarity with that. Okay. Yeah, I, I use it pretty much every batch. Uh, the correct dosage and, and usage is uh, a half teaspoon into your mash and a half teaspoon uh, into the last five minutes of the boil. This is for five you know, a five-gallon five batch of, uh, yeah, of beer. Uh, it it chelates uh, some of the metals and reduces the oxygen in the beer, I'm told. I'm not sure so the exact a, chemistry a, there. Uh, a tannin product. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a gal- it's a long chain gallotin. Okay. 
and it's it's very effective. We found out about it from uh, Joe Formanek. Oh yeah, yeah. Who uh, you know he he works for Ajinomoto, the company that makes it, and has been using it for quite some time. I had an opportunity to taste a, an eight-year-old cream ale that he had found back in the back of a closet that he had used Brutan B on, and that sucker was like as fresh as if it had just been brewed. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and just to speak about the the Lodo part, there is a whole movement of people out there beyond Lodo, right? Because Lodo is its own thing, but there are people out there who are trying to use metabisulfite in finished beer to do antioxidant uh, impacts, kind of like how winemakers do. Yes, Um, yes. And I've seen mixed results about the effectiveness of that. Exactly. And, uh, of course, I'm asthmatic, which means that I've come with a high likelihood of being allergic to sulfites, which I kind of am. So I tend to avoid as much as possible adding any additional sulfites to the things I'm drinking or eating. So I haven't played around with it yeah. that much to be able to give my own personal experience. Yeah, my, my yeah, wife right. and I've reacts heard... to sulfites badly, so, yeah. Yeah, right. So, and and you, you need to be certain, if you're going to be using it in, in finished beer, you need to be certain of the people who uh, might not react well to it. So, uh, you know, if you do use it in finished beer, please let people know that. Yeah, and by the way, I would say that since, you know, Ken's primary focus of the question was about reducing oxygen and water, um, yeah, there's lots of techniques for downstream uh, prevention of oxidation, right? You know, we've talked about those before, things like keeping your beer cold, keep, uh, keeping your kegs purged, all that sort of fun stuff. Right. Um, and in terms, there's an oxygen scavenging method that a lot of people do for their mash water, where the day before they will add yeast and sugar to the mash water and let it uh, let it eat up all the oxygen in it. Yeah, that, that's one way of doing it. The uh, the other way, of course, is you know, uh, freshly boiled water has no oxygen. So if you're right. if you're really concerned about it, and I'm not arguing whether or not you should be concerned about it at this point, but if you're really concerned about it, rather than going the chemical route. The surest process that you have for deoxygenating your water is to boil it. Yeah, and then and then be careful. A lot of people who are concerned about uh, oxygen in the mash underlet their mash water so that they don't have to worry about picking up oxygen when they pour it in. Yeah. So but that's going to well, be, but uh, whether or not that's something you need to worry about will be a question for the next episode. Uh, or a couple questions down the road. Oh yeah, you're right. Oops, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Eric Gomez in Orlando says, I have a question regarding mash salts. I almost always add my salts, calcium chloride and gypsum, after I dough in when I brew at home. And when I'm at work brewing up to 10 barrel batches, I usually add the salts when I have about 80 to 100 gallons remaining out of the usual 280 to 330 gallons. I wondered if anything would change if you added the salts much earlier in the mash process. That's a great question. Um, So different salts have different rates of reaction. Um, And this is why uh, we kind of, as a community, we kind of moved away from calcium carbonate to raise pH in the mash to sodium bicarbonate uh, because calcium carbonate takes like two hours to react and raise mash pH, by which time your mash is long done. Um, So in view of, okay, adding your calcium salts, calcium chloride, calcium sulfate to your, do you add them to the mash? Do you add them to the water? 
Um, you have to be aware that um, the accompanying reactions, uh, you have to wait for the salts to dissolve and then react with the phosphates in the mash uh, in order to lower your mash pH. And so I think there is going to be some difference in time if they have been dissolved beforehand in the, in the hot liquor, uh, prior, you know, prior to mashing in, then they're readily, they're, they're available. Um, they dissolve easier in the mash, uh, because, you know, the, uh, slightly lower pH, but, um, you know, the react, then nobody, I don't think anybody's ever actually measured the reaction rates between the two situations. So I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, Martin, Martin may have. He um, might have, yeah. I, 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 I tend to add all of my salts to my mash water. I even do it the day before. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, so that when I set the delayed timer on my G40, they're already in there ready to go. Uh, and I believe that that is something that he recommended doing was to add them to the water ahead of time as opposed to putting them directly into the mash. Uh, at any rate, that's that's what I do, and it seems to work for yeah, me. Yeah, that that seems very reasonable. Um, yep. The so you mentioned him adding to the mash versus adding them when he's you know when he's commercially brewing you know like seventy five percent dowed in, he'll throw them in then. Um, I think either works. Uh, in the case of calcium salts, calcium chloride uh, dissolves quickly. Uh, and you can assume that its reaction kinetics are fairly quick as well. Calcium sulfate definitely dissolves more slowly, and that's where, Danny, where you are adding it the day before, that's a good idea because I've spent, you know, 15, 20 minutes stirring my stupid hot liquor tank waiting for it all to dissolve <laughs> um, <laughs> on the day of. Well, it's one of those pragmatic things, man, where I set up the day before. I mean, Drew and I both have that uh, that process where we set everything up the day before, measure our mash water, add the salts to it, so that when we walk in the next morning, all we got to do is add the grain and start going. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, another thing just that to crosses finish up, my mind. Just is, to finish up with yeah, I thought ahead. before I lose it. <laughs> um, <laughs> sodium bicarbonate. Um, we did measure when we were doing the, the water book, we did measure a lag of when, if you add the sodium bicarbonate directly to the mash, it took about 20 minutes for it to start affecting the pH. Um, whereas if you dissolve it into the water ahead of time and then mash in, um, it seemed to take, uh, effect more quickly in, in raising the pH. So, um, that's, that kind of finishes my thought is um, the calcium salts may not be as big a factor when it comes to the, the carbonate bicarbonate. Uh, that's where you want to probably dissolve them in first rather than adding them in the mash tun. And, you know, what crosses my mind is that you can add calcium chloride and gypsum directly to a glass of beer to affect the flavor. So if it, if it can have that effect that quickly, then, then yeah, I would say very much what you said, that it really doesn't matter so much when you add them. Mm-hmm. Well, and John, let me ask, because, okay, so you're, you're talking about adding uh, sodium bicarbonate, right? Baking soda yeah. to, to do your, your pH rises um, in case something's too acidic. Right. Um, now, 
for people who don't know, you and I are not located all that far apart. Right. Uh, you know, you're just up the 210 for me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for me, and, and part of the reason I say that is because that means that you and I are getting a lot of MWD water that's the same. Right. And for me, like one of my big problems I always have is my water has a fair, a fairly perceptible level of sodium to it. You know, it's like 50, 50 parts per million, mm-hmm. which is right on that threshold of this is edging to be too much and to the point where if I want to go make my cream ale, for instance, I have to actually dilute down my water like with third with RO water in order to get that salt level down to someplace where I'm not noticing it. Mm, okay. Um, so instead of using sodium bicarbonate, if I'm trying to raise the the mash pH, I usually use uh, slaked lime. Okay, yeah. Right. Um, Calcium hydroxide. Yeah. Um, what about that? I mean, that, that seems to have a fairly quick impact, doesn't it? It does, yeah. The... Um, slake lime, calcium hydroxide, your hydroxides in general, um, sodium hydroxide, potassium hydroxide, uh, they they are strong bases. So those yeah. affect uh, mash pH very quickly, similar to a strong acid. Um, you know, we're talking five, ten minutes uh, from mixing it in. So okay. uh, yeah, those those that definitely works. Um, Professional brewers who have, had switched to slake lime said that they noticed, started noticing a little bit of a medicinal character to the beer that hadn't been there before. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, you know, that may be individual perception or maybe crowd perception. I don't know, but uh, that's yeah. something to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind Calcium of back into I- a corner just because of the sodium level thing. Yeah. So I have to be, I have yeah. to be real careful about adding any more yeah. sodium to my water. I mean, hazy IPAs, you know, hazies, I, I, you know, I encourage 100 ppm sodium uh, because you'll really, you know, you'll make that sweet malt character pop pop out um, with those, with that. But uh, for other styles, yeah. Yeah. The reason I, the reason I started thinking about was because, you know, I tend to make a lot of cream ale and the sodium level that I have rides right on that line. And sometimes depending upon, what day of the week it is, where the water is, what the particular water blend is, I'll end up with a cream ale that tastes salty. Like I actually intentionally dosed it with salt, <laughs> like an old guy with his core light. <laughs> yeah, core light. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, my dad used to put salt in the Schlitz. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't like that flavor. So <laughs> that's the reason why I started paying attention to it. And that's the reason why I have to be very careful about any sort of sodium additions into my water. Right. Right. And since my well water has like virtually no sodium whatsoever, I tend to use baking soda for small pH changes and then go to the calcium hydroxide for larger ones, like if I'm making a very, very dark beer. And what I've found is that I haven't noticed a flavor effect from the calcium hydroxide because it's so strong, you really don't need to use much at all. There you go. Yeah. But again, this is why it's hard to give straightforward answers on water because uh, we're not all starting from the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And brewing is cooking general too, principles. So there's no single correct answer. That's, That's right. It's, it's to taste. Yeah. But there's a lots of wrong answers. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly when they go against what I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah I was going to say, I, I'm full of wrong <laughs> answers. I, I was going to say, man, it is so nice to have John here so that we actually have knowledge-based answers for a change. There you go. Well, speaking of knowledge-based answers, uh, that's the end of the water questions. It's time to go on to mash. First mash question comes from Richie Listen. Well, you remember before I was talking about Lodo, and well, here we are. Um, all right. Can you guys talk a bit more about mash oxidation and HSA? 
I've been brewing for 10 years and have long considered the consensus to be that it is not something to worry about. But recently, I'm hearing credible sources talking about how it is important to minimize oxygen exposure on the hot side and even to use de-aerated water for the mashing process. Some of those sources include brewers from Russian River and Sierra Nevada. Then, Denny, I noticed a comment you made on a Facebook group warning about mash oxidation, which surprised me. So what's the deal here? Do you need to guard against oxidation on the hot side? If so, at what stages? The Lodo people go so far as to worry about these issues during the boil, which seems extreme to me. Where do we draw the line? Now, I think just to set the groundwork, all three of us are fairly skeptical, as John put it, about Lodo in general at the homebrew level. Right? Yeah. And and let me, let me try and explain my thinking here since uh, he mentioned me. I believe that mash oxidation, uh, oxidation pre-boil is real and it can have an effect on your beer. But what it comes down to is how much of an effect on your beer and how far are you willing to go to do something about it. By all reports, the effect is more pronounced in lighter, more delicate beers like Hellas. And that could be one where you really, really want to be careful about oxygen in your mash and uh, pre-boil oxygenation. Um, in things like British beers and stuff, though, it, it's almost appropriate. And uh, Jeff Rankert has reported, because he's been experimenting with low oxygen, uh, that his English beers just didn't taste right when he used Lodo techniques on them because that that oxidation of the malt character is so much a, a part of the flavor profile of those beers. And that's that's really the issue when we're talking about pre-boil oxidation. Uh, the results are that it can it can dull the mark, malt character. Uh, I've had a number of people say, well, I don't have any problem with that because my beers don't taste like cardboard. That's something totally different. That's not where pre-boil mash oxidation shows itself. Uh, it, it shows itself in, in a muted, dulled malt flavor. So my preferred method is to be aware that it can happen, that it does exist, do what I can to prevent it, but only as much as I feel like I want to do and then go, okay, fine, you know, I'm, I'm good with it. There are a number of people who take much more stringent steps, especially those who are really, really committed to Lodo brewing. There are others who kind of go halfway. You know, they'll, they'll do the, the sour gut, like I mentioned, with the yeast and sugar to deaerate their mash water. They'll use what they call maybe like the magic trilogy or something like that, which is the ascorbic acid, brutan B and metabisulfite. Uh, you know, and, Again, it's a personal decision. I would say that it is not something that you have to do if you're not bothered by it. But I would also say be aware that it exists, be careful, and you may make an incremental improvement in your beer. Mr. Palmer? Yeah, um, that, that was well said. Uh, I think... My, my skepticism with Lodo arises from the fact that, you know, in nobody in recent history brewed that way commercially. <laughs> yeah. So what, you know, what, 
character are we trying to achieve? You know, I, I would hear, you know, if, if you want to brew an authentic German beer, you got to brew this way at Lodo and so on. It's like, well, wait, if you go to taste an authentic German beer that are not made that way, you know, uh, you know, how, that was a disconnect for me. So I, th- I think, you know, what, what, what you say in terms of uh, light beers, very pale beers, Helles, Pilsner, Kolsch uh, and so on, where you are trying to capture as much of that, uh, you know, light malt character, that Pilsner malt character from the beer, and will have that as be as bright as it can be. Um, I I think that pH has a lot to do with that, and that's where that's where we start going back into my favorite topic of water and, and mash pH and so on. Um, I think, please no nomograms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think, <laughs> you know, if you, when you, when you start comparing factors, you know, which is a more, a more dominating factor, I have a feeling pH may uh, be more dominating than the subtle effect of Lodo. Um, I could be wrong. And I have not tasted side by side, you know, beers to, you know, Lodo and not to make a, make a determination. Well, and I would like to just quickly address, you know, cause he mentions, Hey, you know, hearing some of the stuff from brewers at Russian river and at Sierra Nevada, mm-hmm. that hey, another very important consideration is again, this is one of those other places where there's, there is a difference in goals and situations yes. between professional brewers and home brewers. Yes. I've always argued on this podcast that one of the biggest advantages that homebrewers have is the fact that we can control the beer from the time that we make it to the time we serve it. And that means we get to keep the beer cold, which is the greatest boon yes. to beer quality over time. And, you know, folks like Russian River and Sierra Nevada, I mean, Sierra Nevada has to ship beer everywhere. And, you know, they have no control of it over it once it leaves their hands. Yeah. And, well, uh, when you say leaves their hands, that's, I mean, you know... Look, you can go to the you can go to the grocery store and you'll find Sierra Nevada sitting on the floor. Right. Yes, grocery store. Yes, I, yeah. I agree. Once it once it gets to distribution, it's out. Yeah. Of, there's no, yeah. no control. And I over think it. we never have to worry about that. Right, and that's where Lodo probably has the biggest benefit to a commercial operation is is that total supply chain, that total manufacturing process uh, improvement in terms of mitigating or reducing improving shelf life uh, of the beer that, you know, where you, you take, you take a look at every step in the process and say, what can we do to reduce and improve, uh, you know, uh, improve shelf life, reduce oxidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which of course is funny then because with Sierra Nevada and particularly the pale ale, uh, and Denny, that's a C64 beer, right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely so. Yeah, and of course, the one of the low oxygen arguments is that C60 is a is the worst pre-oxidized malt out there. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's just kind of funny to see that roll through. But yeah, I mean, again, if Lodo, it's the same thing I've, that we've said for years. Denny and I are not Lodo people because by the nature of the things that we brew. I'm not out here making a hell. And by the nature of the fact that we're lazy as hell. Well, yeah, but I think that plays into what we brew. Um, <laughs> right. You know, German beers to me are fine and dandy and wonderful, and I like a well-made Hellas, but I'm not sitting here trying to obsess over making one for myself. Um, if you are that sort of person, 
and you are a very process-oriented nerd, then I think Lodo would have benefits for you, not necessarily from what it does for your beer, but what it does for your enjoyment for the brewing process. <laughs> so, yeah, and remember, so. at the end of the day, this is a hobby. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Right. Yeah, go take up go take up disc golf. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. Our next mash question comes from Marlinus Monroe, who wrote into us on Facebook. Says, "Is a turbid mash necessary to make a really good lambic? Is there a way to create the same amount of food for the Brett without going that route?" What is a good method to remove sulfur aroma from beers? Is there a way to get rid of DMS in a beer? And what is it short of reboiling? If your beer finishes twice as strong, this is multiple questions. All right. Uh, if your beer finishes twice as strong as you want it to, can you add dairy or water to the uncarbonated wort to bring the ABV down and have twice the beer? Or is that a terrible idea? And will you have gross water beer if you can do that? Also, where do you even buy dairy water? I've heard about it, but never tried it. So I'll tackle a couple of these real quick. Uh, we've already covered a couple of things about de-aired water. You can easily make it yourself. Uh, and yes, you can actually add water to the package or to the prepackaged beer. Anheuser-Busch and everybody else does it. Uh, that's well, how they get so much more capacity out of their plants. And, uh, you know, our good uh, late departed friend, Tasty McDole, used to do that with uh, his beers for the golf course. Yeah, yeah. So you can totally do that. It's fine. It works. Um Let's back up to the other questions here. Uh, is a turbid mash necessary to produce a really good lambic? And for the background on that, turbid mash is a, sort of a very complicated scheme that aims to leave unmodified starch in the wort under the theory that that provides food for later microbes. So is it possible to produce a really good lambic without a turbid mash? That gets to be a loaded question about what exactly is a lambic. Yeah, and what is a really uh, good one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, really. This is, this could be a question for Bob Sylvester. Uh, Bob and uh, and all the the milk the funk folks will have great big opinions yeah. about this. Uh, to me, no, I don't think you need to do a turbid mash in order to necessarily have a great lambic ish beer. And uh, I hesitate to say lambic because people will come after you for saying lambic. Right. Um, I don't think you need to do a turbid mash. Um, I would actually even argue that with today's malts, a turbid mash. It's going to be really hard pressed to leave you a lot of turbidity actually in the word, a lot of a lot of stuff for later yeah. uh, cultures. To me, I would argue it's more important to be able to control what your cultures are and how they actually interact and play. And I think that's the real key to how to do a great lambic. If you want even more information about doing it sort of on a larger homebrew scale, you can go back and listen to the episodes that I did with the Society du Lambic down in San Diego. And they talk about their whole giant lambic bar that they put on every year at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, which John and I can both yeah. testify to are great. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. And and if I remember correctly, they don't do a turbo mash. So, yeah, I, I'm not an expert in that area by any means. Um, I, w I was thinking, I agree that you shouldn't have to do a turbo mash. It is a very, it is a very kind of like smash your kneecaps kind of process to produce a word. Uh, but, um, well, you stop me and think about it. It's doing everything that modern barley malt is designed explicitly not to right, do. Right. Yeah. So right. if you want, if you want unconverted starch and you're in, in the fermentation, uh, add a tablespoon of flour to the boil. <laughs> there you go. And I, I have done that before for a whip. Ah, there you go. Yeah. If you want good bright character, Pitch it 
after the primary fermentation is done, if you want it as strong as certified bark character, I should say, uh, that almost always produces better results than trying to pitch it early. So don't, that's one good way, even without having to do a turbid mash to get more bark character. Um, the other questions that, uh, Merlin said was, uh, what's a good method to remove sulfur aroma from beers? Uh, and is there a way to get rid of DMS in a beer and what is it? And my answer to both of those is CO2 bubbling. Yeah, or uh, for sulfur, too, you can just add a small piece of copper for a day or two. You don't want to leave it in there too long because the pH of the beer will uh, do bad things. But uh, I know uh, Keith Yeager and a number of other people have talked about having great success by just putting like a small piece of copper tubing into the beer for a day or two. I was going to say, if you leave it in for too long, suddenly all your beer will taste like blood. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't, want, you don't want to put it into the bottom of the keg and leave it there until the keg kicks. Right. right. That, that just makes me think of uh, how uh, uh, Sine beer from Belgium tastes, although that's not copper that's iron but still they both taste like blood and sucking on a nine volt battery yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh i i don't want to know how you know john john do you have anything to add to the to the sulfur or dms uh well dms you know that that's that goes to your base malt and the length of your boil you know boiling off the precursors is the way to reduce dms uh now h2s and um you know the Rotten egg and so on. Um, that is also base malt driven and also yeast strain driven. Uh, the interaction of those two on the amino acids, uh, and as well as other fermentation stress factors. But, um, to get rid of sulfur, yes, bubbling CO2, you know, to get rid of the, the burnt match and the, uh, the rotten egg smell in a final beer, then yeah, bubbling CO2 through it. Or you know, purging uh, the keg and re and recarbonate and purging again can can help get rid of that. But uh, DMS itself that should be taken care of during the boil. Right there you go. Okay, yeah, well, um, yeah. Very importantly, it's really all about driving off the SMM to avoid the creation of DMS. But uh, even then, a lot of modern malts, even modern pilsner malts, have uh, relatively low SMM levels. So. DMS is hopefully becoming less and less of a concern. And right. actually, we get there in just another question or two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Fred the Cat on the HA forum. Uh, my question is, how do you guys adjust pH up like for an Imperial Stout? I already said, slaked lime, cal, calcium hydroxide. That's what I use. Yep. Baking, baking soda or, or calcium hydroxide for me, depending on how much. Yes, I just I just use the baking soda guy. Um, a little bit of uh, residual alkalinity goes a long way. So yep, um, yeah, I'm, I'm generally targeting a mash pH of you know five six if I'm doing Russian Imperial Stout, and uh, right. that usually and usually like you know um, that would be a residual alkalinity of like a hundred hundred and fifty. Uh, PPM is calcium carbonate would get me there, and that would you know, and and the the beer will come out nice and smooth. Yeah, cool. Well, and I will I will say to John's point, a little goes a long way, and I would always 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 suggest that when you're first starting to make these sorts of changes, uh, don't do the sort of salt spice chili pepper approach to cooking. <laughs> Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> uh, take, take a very light hand about this at first. You can always adjust up later. Um, John, you, you mentioned the, the pH range. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I just wanted to, uh, I figured, why not talk about it a little bit? So if I remember correctly for you, you are always in favor of, as the beer gets darker, you like to have a higher mash pH. Yeah. Yeah. And then as the beer gets paler, a lower mash pH. Right. I think that the, the idea is that, uh, as the pH of that beer decreases, uh, you know, towards to the finished beer, um, your, your starting point helps drive your end point. So a little higher mash pH for your dark beers helps have a little higher beer pH, 4.6, uh, say versus 4.2, which I would try, that would, 4.2 would be a target for, say, a Hellas. Um, and a lower mash pH, you know, 5.2 for the Hellas. Uh, lower, lower mash pH, driving lower beer pH, lower beer pH, uh, helping promote and brighten the singular base malt character of a, of, of a Hellas or a Pilsner versus a high, little higher mash pH helping to open up the malt character of these darker beers like, like the Imperial or a Porter. Uh, where you have several specialty malts that are all fighting for, you know, little bits of notes, uh, in the, in the flavor profile. Yeah. And I, I do very much the same thing, but let, let me ask you this, John, do you adjust pH in your beers post boil? No. And because I'm, I'm confident that I, I do that in the mash and it works. So it just, um, I, yeah, I haven't tested it, you know, in years, but, you know, that's the way it always worked 10 years ago when I was working on the water book and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's a part of the reason I asked that, of course, is there's now a trend in like talking to Julian Schrago down at Beachwood, for instance. He's a big proponent of yeah. uh, doing post boil wort acidification to actually lower the pH of his beer going out into the, into the whirlpool to deal with the pH rise that he's going to get from both whirlpool hops and the dry hop. Right. Layer for right. Guys. Um, and that's where I've been seeing people talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And I've, I've just started to think about doing that. And I think that it's something I'm going to start experimenting with. Got into a great discussion on Facebook the other day with somebody in terms of, uh, how to use brune water to figure out how much acid to use post boil. And, uh, now that I have a, a process that I can, I can shoot for, I'm going to give it a try and see what happens. Yeah. Good. Good. See, look, so many damn levers to pull. All of them with different, I know, different I know man. And, and the question is always, does it really matter? <laughs> well, we'll find out, won't we? Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, the question will always be in the hands of the beer drinker. Yeah. Well, All right. part of part of the re, part of the answer for that does it you know does it really matter is shelf life. You know, in the short term, no, it doesn't really matter. Long term, yeah, it can make a difference. Yeah. 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 And I think Julian and argues I'm, that by pre-acidifying uh, to deal with the warp, uh, or the rise is going to get from the dry hump, it allows the beer to remain crisp. Yep. And present the hop character a little bit more forward, which, you know, as we all know, jewels. Yeah. That's very important to them. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and and I can say, man, that that guy makes some of the finest IPAs that I've ever had. And you know that I'm pretty intense about my IPAs. I was going to say, I sent you, what, a, a Amalgamator, I think, right? Uh, you sent me a couple different ones, man, and and they're just stunningly good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I said, that, that dude knows his IPAs. He knows his saisons. <laughs> yes, he does. He, he knows his saisons, too, but unfortunately, as with everybody else in the world, nobody drinks them. Right. Mm. Yeah. All right. Last question for the day, because we're splitting this show into two, because it turns out we like to talk a lot. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Who would have thought? Final MASH question of the day comes from Adam Art on Facebook. It says, is DMS dead in the modern world for homebrewers, or are there instances in which it can sneak up on you and bite you still? Uh, then also a hot side aeration myth, a problem to be avoided. I think we covered that with the Lodo bit. Experimentation through never brewing the same beer twice versus brewing the same beer over and over and over again with one change. So let's tackle the DMS issue. As I alluded to earlier, modern malts are really sort of structured in a way that is not eliminating the issue, but making it a hell of a lot harder to get to, um, at least in my mind. Uh, John, Denny? Yeah, um, steps have been taken. But at the same time, I remember at like CBC, you'll see maltsters advertising um, stout malt and, you know, very, very pale malts, um, high enzyme malts. Those will have more DMS in them. Uh, so, it, yeah, you got to know what you got to know what the trade offs are. Uh, the best way to knock down the precursor, the SMM precursor, is to kiln the malt at a higher temperature so that gets uh, transformed and blown off earlier in the malting process, or you know, at the end of, malt, end of the malting process. When you when you buy these very pale Pilsner malts, they tend to have more calling for a longer boil time. And I've I've uh, read, and my experience is that boil time isn't as, as a big factor as boil vigor, right? You can get by with right. a, a shorter boil if it's a very vigorous yeah. boil, right? And that's why you see so many calandrias in commercial breweries is, and uh, uh, because the higher surface area and, you know, of, uh, and trans, you know, atmospheric transfer vaporization that you get from a calandria greatly reduces the SMM in the same, in the same time length of boil. Uh, than you know, conventional boiling does. And for those of you who don't know what a calandria is, think of kind of like a, a a metal cone rising up out of the the uh, the middle of your kettle that the the work kind of spills over as it's boiling. Yeah, you're thinking, you know, oh horrors, it's being hot side aerated, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah you're I, under, well, you know what? The, I, I'd been thinking about saying that, but I didn't want to go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, there is the there is the the vapor the steam blanket you know that keeps the actual oxygen concentration inside the kettle pretty low. So you get the DM the SMM coming out of the wort uh, without much oxygen going in when the with the calandria right. set up. So yeah, I've always I've always wanted to tell Blickman to you know you should start making little calandrias for. Oh, God, just what homebrewers need is more Blickman stuff to buy. (laughs) Okay, I think that that's about it for today, huh? Uh, Yeah, I I think that is. And, of course, uh, you know, we've got more questions to go through, and that will be on the next episode. So stay tuned and listen to that. And as always, if you do have questions, and specifically you want to get John a question before we record, uh, you can send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or just hit us up on any of the social media channels that you see us talking about, and we'll make sure to try and get it in there. And, of course, you can always call us at 
765-1AL and leave a voicemail, or you can even actually text us at that number in case you're shy and don't want to have your voice recorded somewhere like me. <laughs> so thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing, and especially thanks to John Palmer for taking the time to join us today and uh, on the next episode, too. Man, it's always so much fun talking to you, John. Well, thank you very much. It was, it was great to be a guest on your show, and I've always enjoyed it, so it's fun to be here. Cool. <laughs> and now you know how the sausage is made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. And just a reminder, we're still migrating to a new host. All the episodes are there. A lot of the other uh, info at experimentalbrew.com is still being put up. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. Uh, you can find me hanging around the AHA forum, uh, the brew house at the beer garden, or uh, Facebook. I spent way too much time on. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't worry, we share emails, so you can talk uh, crap about each of us. Yeah, right. And if you want to talk to John, he's John at HowToBrew.com. And don't forget that you can always shoot us a voicemail, send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253 for those of you who don't spell. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.